two weeks ago, we launched out into our fall preaching series entitled Evangelical Convictions, a study of the EFCA Statement of Faith. The letters EFCA refer to the Evangelical Free Church of America. That's our denomination. That's the movement of which we have been a happy part since 1962, for those of you who are playing at home. I don't know if you knew that or not, but since 1962, this has been our movement. This has been our team. And this season, our church is focused like a laser on the gospel. Because as we've learned over the last two Sundays, there are many Christian doctrines. A believer can make it all the way to heaven without knowing, but the gospel is simply not one of them. Every Christ follower must know the continuing priority of the gospel, the compelling promises of the gospel, and the converting power of the gospel. Our purpose with this series is simple. We will say this phrase as often as we can so it gets into our bloodstream. We want to get the gospel right for the purposes of getting the gospel out. The message of the life, death, and resurrection and soon return of Jesus is a reality that we must enjoy ourselves if we are going to entrust to others. And last week, we began to consider the role that sound doctrine plays as it relates to our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus. Remember, doctrine isn't a word that we should be frightened away by. It's just a word that means what the Bible teaches in this context. Doctrine is what the Bible teaches. We discovered that the gospel and biblical doctrine last week, they are inseparably linked to one another. We believe in gospel-shaped doctrine, Because what we have is a gospel-shaped Bible. Jesus Christ is the person behind every page of Holy Scripture. Every road in the Bible leads to Him. And therefore, our church is radically committed to learning and loving and living sound doctrine according to the gospel. And that phrase comes from 1 Timothy 1, 10, and 11. Sound doctrine according to the gospel. So what does that look like? What would that... What would that look like if we begin to wrap our minds around this truth? What path could we take as a fellowship to make this increasingly clear for us? Well, that's where your sermon outline comes in this morning. And rather than turn in our Bibles to a particular passage, I will invite you to turn in your sermon outline where you'll see about 77 particular passages. This morning, and I say this with some trepidation because this is the first time in my life where I've attempted something like this. This morning, our sermon text is not the Bible, but the statement of faith of the Evangelical Free Church of America. The goal today is not to expound the scriptures, but rather our statement of faith. Not the Bible, but our beliefs. Now, at the same time, we want to say in a hurry that our statement of faith would collapse if it weren't for the Bible. Our creed in the free church leans so hard on Holy Scripture that if we remove the Bible out from underneath it, it would just simply crumble to the ground. Our statement of faith has nothing to say apart from biblical truth, and not just biblical truth, but the most precious biblical truths that there are in order that we might rally around them as a church. So believe me when I say we are going to be handling lots of Bible today and throughout this series. And you're welcome to refer to any of the passages. I'm glad you have your Bibles with you. I hope you do every week. Um, But you might want to use your Bible simply to place this outline. You can even open it up this way and it'll help you see the statement of faith right next to the outline. Give you a, a handle on where we're going. 
We desire to get the gospel right in order to get the gospel out. So where ought we to begin? Well, to quote from Julie Andrews, let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. And the Bible is unambiguously clear that there even was something before the beginning. Correction, there was someone before the beginning. The first four words in the Bible are found in Genesis 1-1, and they are as follows. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. You see, we believe that the gospel originates in and expresses the wondrous perfections of our eternal triune God. So Article 1 of the Evangelical Free Church of America Statement of Faith. We believe in one God, creator of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Having limitless knowledge and sovereign power, God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his own glory. We believe that the gospel originates in and expresses the wondrous perfections of the eternal triune God. As you may see from that first footnote, I'm borrowing that phrase from um, the official exposition of our statement of faith written by the Free Church leadership. We believe the gospel originates in and expresses the wondrous perfections of the eternal triune God. Now, why do we believe that? Here's the first of four reasons. First point today. God's matchless existence anticipates the gospel. God's matchless existence anticipates the gospel. Article 1 of the EFCA Statement of Faith begins with the words, we believe in one God. One God. We are monotheists. We believe in one God. And why do we believe it? Believe it because that's what the Bible teaches from cover to cover. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the unmistakable declaration of the Hebrew Scriptures, what we know today as the Old Testament. And furthermore, this is the unmistakable declaration of the New Testament. Jesus quotes this very passage. Jesus affirms this truth in his ministry. Mark chapter 12, verse 29, Jesus says the same words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So God is a unity. He is whole. There's oneness to our God. And furthermore, this means, this clearly implies, there is no God apart from our God. The God of the Bible, the God of the Old and New Testament is the only God there is. Listen to him speak in Isaiah 45, 22 and Isaiah 46, 9. Listen to this. God says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Our EFCA leadership writes, our monotheism calls for mission. 
For though other religions may have elements of truth, a person who does not know this God, the God of the Bible, does not know God at all. Now that is a very strong statement. And it's also a very loving statement because it's true. This one God, the God of the Christian scriptures, is the God that we have to deal with. The Bible says there's one God and only one God, and so we believe that there's one God. Now, while there's unity to this God, what we progressively learn in the pages of Holy Scripture is that there's more than unity to this God. There's not less than unity in God. There's just more than simple unity. There's tri-unity. Because... This one God exists in a unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our God, the only God there is, the God of the Bible, exists in a unity of three equally divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the line in Article 1 where we speak of the Trinity, you'll notice we use that word persons and we capitalize it. Now, as soon as we step into the mysterious dark room of the Trinity, um, we begin to stub our toes a little bit. We are grasping for language adequate to summarize what the Bible says about the triunity of God. And so the word persons is frequently used, and we capitalize it here because we're speaking of the divine. But admittedly, the word persons is not a word that you'll find in the Bible to refer to the three members of God. The Trinity. In fact, while we're at it, let's admit that the word Trinity isn't even in the Bible. You're not going to find that in in a concordance. You're not going to find that in the Greek, in the Hebrew, or in our English. The term Trinity was first coined by the ancient church father, Tertullian, between the second and third centuries. So, what do we mean when we say that God is triune? That's where the word persons can be really helpful, if not maybe a little strange to our ears. Um, Augustine, who was another early church father, once put it memorably as he reflected, when the question is asked, three what? Human language labors altogether under great poverty of speech. The answer, however, is given three persons. Not that it might be completely spoken, but that might it not be left wholly unspoken. In other words, Augustine is saying, well, if you don't like the word persons, what language would you you use to describe this God? We're doing the best that we can. The Bible is plain. There's one God, one God and only one God. And yet the scriptures teach that there is plurality in God. I'm not sure how else to say it. It makes your head spin to consider it. There is a father and he is God. There is a Son, and He is God. There is a Holy Spirit, and He is God. And now strap on your seatbelts. The Father is not the Son, nor is the Son the Father. The Father is not the Holy Spirit, nor is the Holy Spirit the Father. And the Son is not the Spirit, nor is the Spirit the Son. And make no mistake, the Bible relentlessly, distinctly, unswervingly proclaims that there is one and only one God. Make you want to sing holy, holy, holy? Yeah. 
As we walk through our statement of faith into the weeks ahead, we will clearly explain how the Bible teaches that the Son is in fact God and that the Spirit is God. At this point, we simply want to make the connection that the uniqueness of God's very existence, it anticipates the gospel. It gets us ready for the gospel. What do we mean? What we mean is that salvation does not happen apart from all three members of the Trinity working together to save you. If you are a Christian, God the Father appointed you for salvation. If you are a Christian, God the Son accomplished your salvation. And if you are a Christian, God the Holy Spirit applies your salvation. I know of no finer passage in the Bible to describe this reality than Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. In Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, Paul explodes in praise when he says, now listen to the members of the Trinity here, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have received redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's all one sentence in Greek, by the way. We believe in one God who exists in a unity of three equally divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father, if you're a Christian, He appointed you to salvation. The Son, if you're a Christian, He accomplished your salvation altogether. The Spirit, if you're a believer, He applied your salvation. He moved in on you with the new birth when you weren't seeking Him. Caused you to be born again. God's matchless existence anticipates the gospel. See, we believe that the gospel originates in and expresses the wondrous perfections of the eternal triune God. Now, here's the second reason that we believe that today. Number two, God's essential character necessitates the gospel. That's point number two. God's essential character necessitates the gospel. Now, before I go any further, let me clarify precisely what I mean. Article 1 of the Free Church Statement of Faith confesses that God is holy. Unlike us, He is morally pure and without taint of sin or evil. And moreover, that holiness and infinite perfection demands justice. And so, it is entirely appropriate that we full 
full-throatedly acknowledge that God does not owe salvation to anyone. That's not what I mean by the fact that God's character necessitates the gospel. God is not our debtor, ever. He doesn't owe us salvation. So when we say that God's essential character necessitates the gospel, we don't want to be misunderstood here. 2 Peter 2.4 says, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, we ought not to presume that he would spare us as human beings. No, the root cause of the gospel is not that God's hand was forced, but rather that his heart was free. When humanity fell into sin and judgment, God would have been perfectly within his creator rights to stamp us into oblivion and deliver swift justice forever. That's what he owes us because of our rebellion against him. But the Bible teaches, and our statement of faith affirms, that God exists in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when it comes to the question of how to deal with a rebellious, sinful creation, God determined in his freedom to lead with love. John 3.16 affirms, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The root cause of the gospel is love. God offers salvation to us at the end of the day out of sheer kindness and mercy. God is not bound to save us, but he is free to save us. Now, at the same time, there are passages in Holy Scripture that make it abundantly clear that once the decision to love sinful human beings was made by God in eternity past, once that decision was made, necessity fell upon God at that point. And two passages along these lines will make the case clearly enough. Matthew 26, 39. In Matthew 26, 39, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember it? And he cries out, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, just a question for us. Do you think that if it was possible that the Father would have let the cup pass from Jesus if it was possible? Yeah. If it was possible, of course he would have. If it were possible. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, we learn that it is not possible for God to save both his son and sinners. Calvary, in other words, had to be so. It had to be so. You might think that's an unwarranted conclusion, but go slow. Jesus himself uses the language of necessity when he speaks of his appointment with the cross of Calvary. We read it last week in Luke 24, verses 25 to 26. Jesus said to the men on the road to Emmaus, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer? And the answer is a stunning yes. It was necessary. It was necessary because God is, as our statement of faith confesses, both loving 
and holy. What is an infinitely holy and perfect and loving God to do in his three persons when humanity revolts against him and commits cosmic treason through their sin? What's his character like? Perfectly holy on the one hand and perfectly loving at the exact same time. Do you see how in the broader sense that God's essential character, it, it, it doesn't just make the gospel possible, it necessitates the gospel. Now there are some other aspects of God's character and attributes that we don't have time to consider up close, but they are positively affirmed in our statement of faith, and I'll just show them to us in passing. Among these are references to God's limitless knowledge and sovereign power. Our confession of God's limitless knowledge is designed to stand over against the unbiblical notion of open theism. It's a teaching that denies God's exhaustive foreknowledge of the future, essentially that God does not know all of the future. An open theist cannot sign our statement of faith, not by a long shot. At the same time, our confession of God's sovereign power is not a denial of human responsibility, the Bible teaches very clearly human responsibility, but rather that God's sovereign power, that phrase is an affirmation of Romans 1.16. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's a truth that both Calvinists and Arminians can affirm happily, lovingly on the same statement of faith. So we believe that the gospel originates in and expresses the wondrous perfections of the eternal triune God. God's essential character necessitates the gospel. Third, God's global mission radiates the gospel. God's global mission radiates the gospel. When we use the term mission, we're thinking about three aspects of God's work in the world that are reflected in our statement of faith. Creation, redemption, and recreation. We'll take them each in turn. First, creation. Preacher's statement of faith openly professes that we believe in one God, creator of all things. This triune God is creator of all things. In fact, if you put John chapter 1 next to Genesis chapter 1, you can see all three members of the Trinity at work in Genesis 1 verses 1 and 2. This triune God is the creator of all things. Nehemiah 9, 6 says, you are the Lord, you alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. Hebrews 11, verse 3 says that by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was made out of things, not out of things that are visible. And then Acts 17.24 sums it up with this crisp statement. I love Acts 17.24. God made the world and everything in it. God made the world and everything in it. That, that is a controversial claim today. It ought not to be. In our church, we heartily embrace the truth contained in the Apostles and the Nicene Creeds that state, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in one God, 
maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Our statement of, place, statement of faith steps up to the plate and swings when it considers the question of origins. We are not ambiguous about this. We are unified in a rock-ribbed conviction that God is the creator of all things. Furthermore, as you were to look through our statement of faith, you would learn that we believe in realities such as the creation of, of all things ex nihilo, that is out of nothing, that God directly created Adam and Eve, the real historical persons, Adam and Eve, bearing his own image. Our statement of faith is unbending in the fact that God created the world with words, and while there's room on the matter of how God created the world with words, specifically how long it took, what processes he used, let me be clear that while the free church does not demand unity on the specifics of creation, such as age of the earth, for example, is not mentioned in our statement of faith, what it does reject is philosophical naturalism. What I mean is that any view founded upon atheism to explain how we got here is rejected by the Evangelical Free Church of America. Darwinian evolution in its rawest form is simply not compatible with either the teachings of the Bible or the teachings of the EFCA statement of faith. To quote the Apostle Paul once again, Acts 17.24, God made the world and everything in it. Secondly, as our statement of faith announces, God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself. You see that? The gospel has been on God's mind and in his designs from eternity. We already read it in Ephesians 1.4. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy 1.9 says that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before the ages began. And the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verse 8, explains that if we have come to know the truth of the gospel, if we embrace the gospel by grace through faith, it turns out that we are among the number whose names have been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. God's global mission is not simply creation, but redemption. To gather himself a people through his Son, from every nation and tribe and people and language. God's global mission radiates the gospel. Now, one last statement about God's mission is that our statement of faith speaks of recreation. And notice I didn't say reincarnation. Recreation. The Bible does not teach reincarnation, but it does teach recreation. There's a difference. Second to the last line in the statement of faith says that we believe that God will make all things new. All things new. That's language explicitly drawn from Revelation, chapter 21, verse 5, where it says that, behold, I am making all things new. That's God talking. The Bible speaks one day of a new heaven and a new earth. And not only that, but resurrected bodies. An end to sinning, an end to suffering. This world's curse lifted and Jesus Christ seated as the uncontested ruling and reigning sovereign of the universe. You say that sounds pretty good. Yeah, it's good. That's good news. 
That's where the gospel is heading. Are you heading there with Jesus? Do you know him? Have you turned from your sins and put your faith definitively in the Savior who bled and died for you? If not, what could possibly be holding you back? What could possibly keep you from throwing yourself on the mercy of the risen Christ today as your Savior and your Lord and your treasure? If you want Him, you can have it. Pardon for your sin, power to live in the strength that He supplies, and mission to engage in that will make sense of your life on earth. Come to Jesus Christ today. If you never have, put your faith in Him now. God's global mission radiates the gospel. Are you a part of it? We believe that the gospel originates in and expresses the wondrous perfections of the eternal triune God. Well, fourth and final reason we believe in that, God's ultimate motive elevates the gospel. God's ultimate motive elevates the gospel. The final four words of the Free Church Statement of Faith are incredibly powerful and we ought not to breeze over them. For His own glory. This is the answer to why God does what He does the way that God does it. What we we be sin in us is celebrated in God. God does all things for His own glory. In fact, the gospel is designed to humble us, to reduce us, and to maximize and to lift up God. It's given for a humbling, it's given for a happiness, and it's given for God's exaltation. God does all things for His own glory. This is true of His work in creation. Uh, Psalm 19, verse 1 declares to us that the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Speaking in the first person, God reminds us in Isaiah 43, 7, I created for my glory everyone whom I formed and made. That's why He made you. He made you for His glory. God's ultimate motive in creating all things, uniquely in creating human beings, is that He might be on display and known, and noticed, and prized, and praised. That's why God made us. And yet, creation is not God's greatest work. Redemption of creation is His greatest work. And the Bible tells us that in no uncertain terms that God aims to be glorified not only in our creation, but especially in our redemption. If God's aim is to make much of himself in our first birth, it's ten times as true that he aims to make much of himself in our second birth, in our new birth, when a person is born again. We'll close with this final passage. Uh, Listen to the words of the inspired Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 6, where Paul puts together God as creator and God as redeemer, first birth and second birth, and how all of it points to the glory of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. This is what evangelism is all about. As you go from this place, this is your work. 
Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who mediates God to us. He brings God to us. Jesus is the one who accomplishes the gospel. And in Jesus, God is most glorified. So God's ultimate motive of glorifying himself, which is over and above creation, it's even over and above salvation, more important than the rescue of any single person is God's own glory. And make no mistake, God is glorified in everyone on this earth, even those who do not come to saving faith in Christ. But God is most exquisitely glorified and sweetly shown to be sufficient and all-powerful and wonderful through the salvation of sinners like us. Well, let's review. We believe the gospel originates in and expresses the wondrous perfections of the eternal triune God. Why do we believe that? Four reasons. God's matchless existence anticipates the gospel. God's essential character necessitates the gospel. God's global mission radiates the gospel. And God's ultimate motive, it elevates the gospel. It shows the primacy of the gospel in God's thinking and ought to be in ours. The gospel is God's. It's God's gospel. The New Testament rings with that phrase about six different times. The gospel is his. It belongs to him. The gospel exists to bring us to God. What we believe about God has everything to do with the gospel, and therefore what we believe about God has everything to do with our mission and our vision as a church. I hope you hear echoes of the 2020 vision as we study the character of God this morning. This week, I strongly encourage you to hop into a community group. Sign-ups are located in Fellowship Hall. Community group study guide questions this week as well as the rest of the season are designed to further unfold and apply our statement of faith into our church in a practical way. Hope that you'll take advantage of those, whether in your family or perhaps in a group. Next week, the revelation of the gospel, what we believe about the Bible. We'll pick it up then. Right now, let's pray.